We're going to move on and we're still in this verse and we've spoken about, uh, we've spoken against, it says, we're not against flesh and blood again. We've looked at the rulers, the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. And then he goes in and uses the word in heavenly places. This speaks of the battle taking place in the heavenlies, the lower regions of the heavens. It is far from the place of God's dwelling and further it is speaking of its impact here on earth which cannot be overlooked. Although we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, our wrestling is in some way both in its, its impacts is here on earth, in the physical, even though it's a spiritual battle. All of the work of the devil and his demons is what we must fight against. It's a battle that we must commit to exposing wrong when we see it standing against for all of our time here on earth while we're on this earth. We cannot at any point allow its influences to influence our churches or weaken our moral code or indeed infiltrate our homes. Some argue that these evil spirits are in the heavenlies and are only concerned with heavenly matters, not earthly ones. Whereas others believe it's to speak of the church's conflict with evil spirits being in the heavenlies against demons who have invaded the local church. But it's actually speaking of the locality of where these spirits are and that they are positioned in heavenlies. Every other time the phrase in the heavenlies or heavenly places in Ephesians that we see in Ephesians is speaking of an actual location. So this is where those spirits, evil spirits are. They are in the heavenlies. You see that in chapter 1, 3 and 20, chapter 2, section chapter 3, 10. Uh, if you look at Ephesians 1, 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Where? In heavenly places. He talks about that we, uh, in Ephesians 1.20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him where? In the heavenly places. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. And so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. In 3.10, look at that. It actually says and demonstrates the church is told to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God to both good and evil spiritual leaders in the heavenlies in Ephesians 3.10. We also see in Job, um, Job chapter 1 verses 6 to 12, Job and, and, sorry, God and Satan uh, are having a conversation in the book of Job. He says, now, for, now there's a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan. And all also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth and blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. There's a conversation and a place in the presence of the Lord. We see the struggle and battle between angels and demons mentioned in the book of Daniel. 
Daniel 10, 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. And in verse 20, he says, then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So as we see, the word heavenlies speaks of the place where evil spirits dwell. But what is also noticed is that in the heavenlies, it also speaks to the place where Christ and the church dwells. And it says in Ephesians 1, 21 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. And in Ephesians 2, 6, it says, And he raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But these heavenly places are far above those of evil spirits who have been cast out of heaven. But from this we can clearly see that both the devil and his demons and Christ and the church are seated in heavenlies. This indeed is a location of spiritual conflict. It takes place between both parties. But this does not affect just those things in the heavenlies. For it does indeed impact us here on earth. We know that our spiritual blessings are heavenly. In verse, uh, chapter 1-3. But we partake of them partially here and now. We know that we are seated with him in heavenly places. But we also have access to the benefits of that power now. And we also must remember that we live in this present evil age. Chapter 5 verse 6. Which is here and now among us. This reveals to us that the position of the Christian is on earth. And in the heavenlies. And also present are the devil and his demons both in the earth and in the heavenlies. The devil is the ruler known as the ruler of the air. Ephesians 2, 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now worked in the sons of the disobedience. He also controls this evil world. 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And the devil is the god of this age, small g. In this case, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world we saw earlier has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Uh, one of the great theologians I love reading is, is a guy called Harold Honer and he wrote this on this particular subject and he says, it must be realised that positionally believers have victory in Christ in the heavenlies but in reality the victory will not be fully realised until the subjugation of evil yet in the future. Therefore, this struggle is a present reality which will culminate with the defeat of the devil and his angels at the second coming of Christ. So he goes on and he moves on and he says, in verse 13 again, he reminds him and he says, therefore, so he's already says, put on the armour of God, but in verse 13 he says, therefore, take up the whole armour of God. Now he's just revealed to the Ephesians the reason that they must walk in the strength of Christ and why they must be clothed in the armour of God so that they will be able to stand against the devil and his works. So after this he is now once again reminding them to take up this armour. Not just a single part of it but here he's speaking with a term that requires urgency. This is the urgency which in light of what we've just seen and who we are facing, it's the onslaught of attack upon us, 
is very smart to do, is urgently get on this armour. The belt of truth that it talks about is not enough on its own. The breastplate of righteousness is not enough on its own. The readiness of the gospel of peace as shoes for our feet is not enough on its own. The shield of faith is not enough. The helmet of salvation is not enough on its own. The sword of the spirit is not enough. Praying at all times with all kinds of prayer is not enough. We are to take up all of it, the whole armour of God. And it means that we are to pick up each item, slide into it, carry it with us at all times and be ready at all times to use it. It is our responsibility. God has given it to us to put it on. Not God or God has given unto us and we must be active in wearing it. It says that you put this on that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That you may be able to that you may be able to also be translated to as we will, when fully equipped, be capable of withstanding. It's the member, if we're in the power of Christ, we have been given the ability to do it. If we're wearing the armour of God and putting it on, we are in the power of God. We are able to withstand. We are now made capable of actually overcoming. Only when fully clothed in his armour and the strength of Christ are we able to take part in such cosmic battles. This armour will allow us to withstand, which is allow us to be firm-footed, unwavering, resist against. To withstand the evil day or to resist is to resist the perils that come to the Christian faith, those that cause us to toil, that maybe bring annoyances and dangers to us. The evil day is speaking of the times and the seasons when upon the believer attacks and assaults and troubles through the workings of demons will try to hinder and destroy the saints of God. This was perilous times for the followers of Christ. Paul himself was in prison. Other apostles were being stoned and beaten. Persecution of the Christian faith was rife at that time. Now today the church may not experience so much of the physical attacks upon members although in some countries it still goes on. But the wiles and the schemes of the devil is to attack the, even the very word of God. Trying to popularise things that the Bible strictly for, forbids. Trying, then trying to remove the order of things from God's house. They try to belittle God's conduct and behaviours that he's given for individuals. They try to usurp the authority of the church. They try to infiltrate with the allowance of sexual immorality. And on and on it goes, more than ever, we must stand and we must withstand. This is a defensive military stance talking about to have here, not an offensive one. It is standing your ground. I have often tried standing my ground against my wife and they all know who wins that war. But it's not that it's the kind of standing or taking a stance, right? As we are saying, we are ready I am ready now. I've got the strength of Christ. I've got the armour of God on. I am ready to go out. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready when that attack comes. The evil day we are going to have to withstand in refers most likely to the entire span of the Christian life. This is evil days. These are not holy days as we would love them to be and wonderful happy days. Although we can have the joy. That's why our joy is in Christ 
It's in him because the world is inherently evil. We must be aware and prepare for these attacks when we face things every day. But also we must be aware of the unexpected. That's why we're to be aware and alert at all times. These things come at us from all sides that we don't always see. And then he says, and having done all, stand firm. Paul says here now, after you've received the strength of Christ and after you've taken up all the armour of God given to you by God and which is now in your hand, slide into it, wear it and you're now officially ready for the battlefield. And when you go into the world, stand firm-footed, be unwavering, accept no substitutes, don't be a people pleaser. If, you, if what you are facing brings persecution, stand firm. We are to stand ready, prepared for all that is coming our way. But what in the knowledge that Christ has already overcome these things. We are fully equipped with the things required to overcome all the things that come at us. We are fully equipped with these things. And he goes on to start talking now about the individual pieces of armour. And he begins breaking down what he has, what we saw they're probably seen soldiers wearing in the typical armour of a Roman soldier. And standing therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. Paul begins this verse by saying, now okay, get up, urgency is required. No more lying around waiting for the attacks to overcome you and wondering what to do about it. Get up. Put on the arm and stand for. First of all, the apostle addresses, he addresses all of the items we should have on. And it's almost like a checklist we can go through to make sure that we have it all. Now other translations will see having, this mean says it's having, the ESP having fastened the belt of truth around. Others say having girded yourself, right, with truth. So what then is this item that we are told to put on first? And this is why it's so important, the girdle around was a type of apron which was uh, hunched, it was hung under the armour of a soldier and it was most likely made with straps of leather protecting the thighs it was an item that other parts of clothing could be fastened to with straps uh, or the long parts of the robes could be tucked into this would allow the soldier to have greater freedom of movement as he went about and similarly we are to equip ourselves with the knowledge of truth. This can either speak of two things, this truth. It can speak of the truth of the believer being a truthful individual, a person of integrity, and an individual like that. Or indeed it can speak of the truth of, their, of God, the truth of their salvation that they can hold fast to. The belt was seen to have sat right upon the top of the hips and was where the Hebrew believed that the power, was, the power of their force was generated from. So it sat there. And this is the case for us. For it is in the very presence of truth that we will keep us correct path. It will keep us in the correct path and in the protection of God. When there's, it's only in the presence of truth do we have the blessing of God. When we walk in the presence of falsehood or a lie, we're not walking with the Lord. So when we walk in truth and integrity of heart, when we walk in the truth of the light of our salvation, then we have the blessing and the protection of God upon us. So put that on. Put on integrity. Put on truthfulness. Honesty. Put on the truthfulness of your salvation. The meaning of truth is that a believer must walk in personal excellence. 
The mindset that is free from a mind intent on trying to impress, from being pretentious, free from thinking we have a higher position than we actually do, free from falsehood, free from deceitfulness. John 8, 44 says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. So let's walk in the truth of the Lord, not in the truth of the world or their ways or the truth of Satan, who's the father of lies. The truth the believer is to wear and model is that of sincerity of mind, integrity of character, a life and a lifestyle that is in perfect harmony with divine truth. 1 Corinthians 5, 8 says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In, 13, in 1 Corinthians 13, 46, it says, Love is patient. We've seen this earlier. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. does not resist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. So the love of God that we have been given to us should empower us to truthfulness. And he says then, he moves on after putting on this, this truth. And we're now going out, we've now got the strength of Christ. We're now walking with truthfulness and integrity and purity of heart. We then put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now I had a whole thing and then I decided not to teach that style. We'll teach it in a future class about the imputed righteousness, the subject of imputed righteousness. I was going to do it, but I'm not going to do it now because I don't have time to do it. But we're going to talk about the breastplate of righteousness. And now Paul speaks to the next thing we're to put on, which is the breastplate of righteousness. This is the part of the armour, and it was in two parts. Protecting the body from the neck to the middle, so the entire body, both front and back, were covered. Now I mentioned the word back for a reason. This may blow apart some teaching that you may have heard in the church with a when casual comments are kind of thrown about where some people would maybe say something like, you know it's how the armour of God's never get anything for your back? That's because you don't see it when brothers and sisters stab you in the back. And I used to hear this comment and say, oh aye, 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 that's right, oh aye, there's nothing for my back. Well that's wrong because the breastplate of righteousness is not called the breastplate was actually protection for the front and the back and the neck. So it kind of blows that theory out the window a wee bit, right? It's just uh, they had no idea, really. These are just comments that I grew up believing that were wrong because it, just because I had no understanding of the passage or what a Roman's actual armour looked like. In Paul's day, it was a metal plate worn over a leather jerkin to protect both the chest and the back area. The book of Revelation speaks of the breastplate uh, uh, twice and it talks about it. It's a breastplate of iron. In Revelation 9.9, they said they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And then it was also in Revelation 9.17, they were coloured like fire and adorned with jewels. Pretty nice, very pretty. And I wonder if they had tinsel and fancy lights on them. It said, this breastplate is that which is given to all. Breastplate of righteousness is one that's given to all believers. Uh, upon their salvation along with all other parts of the armour of God it's speaking of the righteousness of Christ given unto all believers 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. And he said the purpose of this given breastplate, the righteousness, is to protect the believer's heart and soul from evil and the deceitful schemes. For it's completely unbiblical and futile to even think that we can defeat the devil's works in our own self-righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us this. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like wind take us away. As a believer, we've been given a breastplate that protects our hearts and minds from all the wiles and deceitfulness and trickery of the devil. And we know that it's not of our own doing, but it is entirely the work of Christ, for it has Christ emblazoned across it. His righteousness is victorious, overcoming and impenetrable. So he says, take this and wear this. For all that you have on your own is useless against such evil. Keep in your minds at all times when you come up against evil, God is saying, wear this. Wear Christ. When we come before God, God sees Christ. He sees his, Jesus' righteousness. He doesn't see, he sees the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. He doesn't see our own righteousness, which gets us nothing. In verse 15, he jumps on to the next item and he says this, and, show, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness giving by the gospel of peace. Paul now moves on to the feet and the covering we're to put around our feet. And he's speaking of putting a binding around our feet in preparation for the preaching of the gospel. The Roman soldiers wore heavy sandals with soles made of several layers of leather, averaging about two centimetres in thickness. They were studded with hobnails in the bottom. They're called hollow-headed hobnails. You can go and look them up. They were then tied with leather thongs halfway up the shin and even in the winter time they would stuff them with wool and fur to protect them during cold months. These were not common sandals for running or everyday use. They were used for digging into the ground with their hollow-headed hobnails to stand firm against the enemy. Remember we just read about standing firm and withstanding we need to stand firm. The soldier's armour was equipped for that with these nails, hobnails in the bottom of their feet to be able to dig in and stand firm. What this means is that we are to be ready. We are, because we have the gospel of peace, we can stand firm. Remember this armour is defensive, not offensive. We've been given peace and the surety of our salvation. We have seen that he is our peace who has broken down hostility between Jew and Gentile. And in him, we now have peace where we can stand no matter what is coming our way, no matter how much turmoil is going on around a bit of us, we can stand firm in the peace knowing that we can resist because we know where our future is. We can stand in peace firmly. And he goes on in verse 16 and says this, and all circumstances then take up the next part, which is the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In every circumstance, the darts are just sharp arrows. There was many things that they threw that were sharp spears and, you know, almost like, you know, big long spears, almost like 
could say a javelin today, there was various things that had sharp edges, but this particular passage is actually speaking of arrows that they could set a light wrapped around and set in fire. The shield of faith was a long object that was long and could almost cover the entirety of the man himself standing behind it. These particular shields are on shoulders, it was covered the full body and they could stand. And before they went out to battle, they would douse it in water so that when things hit against it, it would ex- dis- extinguish it. Right, if tar had against it, so it would now some things we know that would bounce off and break and fall off the thing, but this was ref- in reference to things that stick in, right, and catch fire. But the water, the soaking, this would mean it would fizzle out quickly. In every circumstance, in fact, the phrase means in addition to this, in all circumstances. So, in addition to all that you've already put on, now take up the shield of faith. All of the previous items were in some way attached to the body, and this shield was different because it was to the front of you you'd put it out the shield mentioned here was a large object four big oblong four big corners to put the shield in front of us it protected us the whole body it means to once again in a defensive position take a stance do you notice how all of this is speaking of a defensive position to take a stance against falsehood against deceit against trickery against things that would penetrate the church and then he goes on in verse 17 for another item that says and that's the helmet of salvation take the helmet of salvation Paul now moves on to the head with the covering likened to that of putting on a helmet the helmet in a soldier's armour was to stop things affecting and getting to the head it was a protection not something used to headbutt or attack with although I'm pretty sure in some hefty battles they may have done that uh, if we've all seen some of the movies you've watched as you've grown up. In fact, both the helmet and the sword are the two final pieces of armour that a soldier would put on and take up. They would put everything else on and the helmet and the sword were the last two things they would take with them. The helmet is a defensive part of our armour. It speaks of the protection of the mind. It speaks of the protection of the mind, the will and the emotions of a man which exists in the hope of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Again, it's standing for me. In Isaiah 59.17, he put on, we saw, the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet for salvation. Our helmet is to resist that which is present, protecting the hope of that which is to come. Let me say that again. Our helmet is to resist that which is present, attacking us, protecting the hope of that which is to come. It's very easy to lose when we're in a battle or we're struggling or we're down or something's coming at us, attacking our minds like that, to be thinking of our eternity. We kind of lose sight of our eternal position in Christ or salvation when we're going through such trials. So I can't see a way out. I just can't see it. I can't see it. Eternity is your way out. So the helmet of putting that on protects the mind to, to protect the truth that we are saved. We are being saved and we will always be saved. This is not a battle of intellect or how clever we are. It's a battle, it's, it's a battle for the mind that, that resists any doubt or fear of losing your salvation that is securing Christ. The helmet reminds us that during times of battle, And even under extreme duress, our salvation is secure. He will deliver us. He will save us. 
You know, I think about today and the conflict going on in the Ukraine. And I think, I wonder how many soldiers, probably in both parties, but especially as I think of the Ukrainian troops and stuff, and the length that this battle is way over 100 days now, and, and are they losing sight of the goal? You know, are they losing that this is for salvation of our nation? This is for freedom we're fighting. Did they lose that ever? And did they get down about that? And these kind of things, you know. And as a Christian, we have to wear this helmet always because that is a constant threat to our mind, that constant attack against that promise that we have. And he goes on and says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. We now come on to that thing, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And just as we saw the defensive parts of the armour, we now see a sort of offensive part coming to the armour here. However, this item is both of, can, can be seen both as defensive and offensive. It's the piece of armour that's unlike any other. When it says, take up the sword of the Spirit, it's not saying that the Spirit is the sword. But it is he who is the provider of the sword. He provides us with the scriptures to use for each occasion. If we are putting the scriptures in, he will bring them to our memory. He enables us by recalling them to use. When doubts and fears come, when men try to make philosophical vain arguments against the truth, when men try to destroy the gospel through human wisdom and scientific explanations, the errors of this present world can be refuted and a sharp blow struck if we speak forth the word of God. When we are steeped in the scriptures and meditate on them day and night, and along comes doubt, falsehood and accusations, etc., from deep within the Spirit of God will raise up the word of God to defend and strike a blow. Where there is an attack against truth, the word will come forth and pierce it and expose it as falsehood. People often will walk away swiftly, and I know they do, when I start harping on about the importance of knowing the scriptures, the sufficiency of scripture, or knowing the context, or knowing expository preaching, or knowing the glorious ologies, as I call them. I was doing a, I'm putting together a series called Glorious Ologies, covering systematic theology, eschatology, pneumatology, soteriology, biblical imputation, regeneration, justification, salvation. These are all huge, big words. And people are like, I don't know what half of these words mean. We talk about the blood sacrifice, communion, baptism, creation. When we don't know the Bible, then it's very easy to be deceived by any voice that seems convincing enough. When we don't know what the fruit of the Spirit are or the, the, the gifts of the Spirit are or these things in the life of the church, the roles of the roles of the father, the roles of the mother, the roles of the children, the roles of headship of the government of church, it seems an insurmountable load to try and learn all of this kind of thing. And, and our minds may explode at the thought of something like this. If you were to meditate in just one verse a day, it would take you 31,102 days to meditate on the Bible. It's 85 years at one verse a day. It's like, what? What we need then? Maybe, right? I don't know. But we meditate in the scriptures, plural, day and night, instead of maybe four hours watching our latest TV show. <laughs> Sorry. It's, uh, <laughs> maybe just one episode will do. Not 
four, five, six, seven episodes at a time. And we say we have no time for the gospel to study. What are we doing, man? Seriously. We put it off, pick up the word. I can testify that at times I have known more about the characters and plots of Sons of Anarchy or Grey's Anatomy than I have about the Bible. And I wondered why my life was a total mess. And I was struggling mentally. I'm sure that there has been many times when I have come home from work or such like and told my wife something that someone said that I was sure would solve a problem only to realise it was a wisdom and a soundbite of man which could easily be pulled apart very quickly. It was just human wisdom. When come, what comes out of your mouth during an attack upon you is the soul speaking forth what it's taught. We cannot win a battle by quoting movies or TV shows. I know some of you may not want to hear all this, but in the words of Jack Nicholson, he said this, sometimes we can't handle the truth. Yet it's the very thing we're told to handle and wear. John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Our ignorance of the word of God is what's killing us, weakening us, weakening our armour, and we need to do more. We need to do more. This is the sword, the word of God. The more that we put in, the more the Holy Spirit can bring out of us in defence. We need more word, more equipping. We need more prayer. We need more teaching. Our warfare is not carnal. It is mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. All of these strongholds and spiritual things that seek to destroy our faith in Christ. The more that we put in, the more he brings out of us. You see, the power of the word of God is not only defensive to stand against falsehood, but offensive and that it can pierce every lie spoken. Imagine the face of the devil. I always think of this. Imagine the devil's face when he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus replies with scripture, it is written. You just imagine the devil's face. Oh man, ouch. Thought I was going to get him there. Defeated. The word of God will also act as a sanctifier of our minds, will and emotions. It will bring us godly wisdom, knowledge, understanding, revelation and insight, power for prayer, medication, it's like medicine, joy, conviction, correction and comfort. When the word of God is like a chore to the believer, it's because they're bound to thinking that it's a book that's too difficult or to understand or it's old and stuffy. Or we think it's maybe not relevant anymore to modern day life. Or, as some would maybe get stuck in the quota of reading their one-year Bible. And we get stuck in a quota, we get stuck in a religious tradition to say, I must read my wee quota for the day. That's when it becomes boring and stuffy at times, and a chore. And guarantee that if studied, as we are called to do, to study the scriptures, with the right tools that we have available, almost all of which is free in the internet, you will be astounded by how relevant, how your entire worldview can change and your pursuit of godliness increased by his most holy word. 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17. You, however, have followed my teaching 
my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love and my steadfastness. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's such an encouragement, isn't it? (laughs) We're all going to be persecuted. Yay. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But, is that lovely word again, but as for you, continuing what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice this. That even although the sword is an offensive weapon, it is not used in an attacking sense. We're not to go out prodding the word and slamming it into everything that comes our way, quoting scripture to everybody and try to tear down even. As we often do, we try to refute people and argue, even with fellow brothers and sisters. We argue at them, we quote more scriptures at them, or we go out in the street and we quote scriptures at people who are resisting our words as we evangelise. That's not the word that we are to, we're not to do that with the word of God. It's a defensive when it comes, when the enemy comes at us, we defend. So we're going to stop there.